Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Just Riding Along on Mountain Bike Radio. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Just Riding Along in the year 2020. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Heavy Brothing. <laughs> uh, it's not what it sounds like. No, no. It's, it's when you are flustered and you accidentally say brothed instead of breathed. He was trying to say the, the past, past tense, tense of, of breathing, breathing and so he said brothing. <laughs> Sup, I'm from the South. <laughs> I never even heard that in the South. That was just me saying I'm stupid. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> I'm going to skip right over that and dive right into donations. Mark Vale sent over 25 American currencies. Oh, he lives in Canyon City. Oh, man, I was going to talk about Canyon City. Well, let's dive right. Kenny, do you want to go first? Sure, why not? That was me just cutting off Andrea because she called me stupid a second ago. <laughs> uh, How's your wheels? Wheels are good, man. So I rode them for the first time. So, uh, buddy, are your trails fucked with snow and cold? Yes. Yeah, you don't you don't ride here this time of the year. Yeah, yeah, that's how it is here too. Yeah. So I did try to go out, uh, but I'll I'll touch on that in a second. So yes, first order of business: new wheels. Uh, Knox, Farlow, XC layup, Aerolites, DT180s. Yeah, they're wheels. They're cool. Um, the nicest thing about it probably for the kind of riding that I'm doing, which is not a lot of racing, is I can run a little bit larger volume tires. And it's probably the tire that I notice more than the wheel. Um, yeah, the wheels are light and all, but yeah, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> How much did the wheel set weigh? It, it came out at fifteen hundred. That's pretty How good. How much I does mean, it my, weigh? My if... Farlow i nines were sixteen, or just a hair under sixteen hundred, I think, or a hair over. Either it, and that were sounds. Right. I, I basically, I just, I call them sixteen hundred gram wheels. I mean, I think they're like a tiny bit under that, but they're definitely not fifteen hundred. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mine, that? mine were like fourteen ninety nine or something silly. Um, no, Andrea, I think your wheels have always sniffed seventeen hundred grams. So if no, they're, I remember they were lighter than what what's on the uh, the website. So the oh, deal is, if yeah. they're i nine hubs and they're the not XC layup Farlows, they would probably be about seventeen hundred. Um, because the DT one eighties are like a hundred to one hundred fifty grams lighter than the i nine hubs, and then this yeah, this layup, right. yeah, and then this layup ends up being about eighty gram savings for a wheel set. Um. Anyway, they're good. I mean, they're wheels. We'll see how they do long-term. So far, I really like them. The points of engagement don't bother me at all. The one thing I do notice about it is I would get every once in a blue moon, uh, I would get partial engagements from those SRAM hubs. And I, I don't really fault the SRAM hub. It's just the nature of... Well, yeah, they're also like a really... I don't want to say cheap like in a bad way, but they're a very affordable hub aren't they yeah i mean the srams are unbelievably cheap i mean i only have really really good stuff to say about the sram hubs for somebody that has 200 dollars or 250 dollars retail for a hub set there's nothing on the planet that comes even close to them because they are also really light and they come in all kinds of different configurations you can get shimano driver body etc cetera, etc cetera. the one thing though you probably cannot get for them is you could probably not get the micro spline i didn't even yeah, think about I that just like you're not going to get an XD driver I mean, who, on an XTR hub. Like, it ain't happening. On the SRAM hubs, you can't get a micro spline free hub body. 
Probably. I mean, I'm just assuming. Yeah, we're, prob- we're probably assuming not. That. Probably not. So we're assuming that, but you know, what I was I getting, know. what I was getting before was you know some random, uh, like it would always happen if I had the wheels going super fast and I'm free hubbing, and then I go give a little jab, and you can just tell like there's a, it's like a crunch. It's a crunch. Yeah. It's it's not. It's not good. And then sometimes what I'd also get is randomly when I'm kind of, uh, I'm just attack position, pedals level, and I'm going through real chattery stuff. Um, actually, I take that back. It's, it's, I'm in that position, and then I give like, I give a light pedal to just, it's like maintenance throttle, if you will. Like I'm just yeah pedaling yeah. along, but the bike's really bouncing around. And I would get just tons of engagements and disengagements. And it was just, Something was weird, and it wasn't that hub that did it. It wasn't just that hub. I got that on the uh, the stands three thirties from yesteryear. That were really popular hub, and still a good hub. Um, it would just something weird would happen. But I will say that's what your experience with the um, like coasting fast and then going like half throttle, yeah, and getting a a noise like that happened with the. Uh, Bontrager rapid drive. Oh, I'm sure. Hubs. I think those were really bad about it. And again, these weren't, I never had any like failures to engage or like slips or anything like that. It was more of an annoyance. Uh, anyway. Right. Which it's not annoying if you have a $200 hub, hub set. You're like, well, yeah, it was $200. Like, what do you, yeah, it, sometimes it makes noise. Yeah. So the moral of this story is I'm really happy with the engagement of the DT hub. Yes, it's not stellar as far as like high points. It's just the 36-tooth factory setup. But when it engages, it engages. And it never bothered me. I did uh, – so Jacob Zimmerman uh, from Memphis, he came into town. And we uh, shot down and did a day trip to um, – we did a day trip to Gooseberry Mesa. So I had a good time and got to go, you know, really play around with the bikes. And, yeah, it's just a giant rock playground essentially. And Matt, I'm very proud I cleared that stupid climb. That one, it's got the real, it's all the way at the end of the trail, pretty much, if you're doing the North Loop. And it's that right kink that's got the little sand trap in the bottom. And with that really odd tree vine thing in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I cleared that damn thing. Because it had it in my brain. An angle, I, though, right? Yeah, I was like, ah, oh, McCully cleared it. It's got to be easy. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank hey. you for motivating me to do it. I was going to say, you're welcome, motherfucker. Yep. That's yeah. the most backhanded compliment I've ever heard. <laughs> no, dude. I it's was still, real fired up. It's still gnarly, man, because we all sat and looked at it for a second, and I was telling uh, Jacob and uh, and Jono, I was like, man, McCulley said he cleared this. And uh, Whoa, whoa, there's some spice there, like you doubt me. Some spice. <laughs> uh, so the move ended up being... I rolled into it and at first I tried to back the bike up and like clip in on that rock and then just pedal down and shoot across. And I didn't, it didn't work well. So I just rolled in super slow and just turned on that rock and then was able to get that first pedal stroke in on the rock and then hit the sand. And then you just kind of lift up and you just go, you like, you just got to put the mental block on of like you're if you, you can't think you're not going to make it cause then you'll die. Well, and also that move, the way that I was, like, I was really fortunate because I just watched someone clean it first go. So uh-huh. I was like, eh, okay. 
So then that I makes s- a big psychological difference. Well, and I saw what they did, which was what you were talking about, is like hard, like hard left hand shoulder. Let's call it on the entry. Super super slow though, because you think you'd want to roll in there fast. But instead, you're like slow on the left, and as you cruise around, you flip Andrea off because she's taking pictures of me using my hands to do a podcast. Uh, but you have to flip that right-hander and then like give it the biscuits. Yeah. So anyway, made that. I was very happy with that. So what I really like is I've got the Fast Track 2.6s, the grid casings on there now, and those things, whew, the old 2.3 Fast Tracks were pretty special, but these things have all kinds of grip these are like these are my downhill tires now (laughs) kenny i would just like to take a moment to reflect with our listeners how years ago we all rode 100 mil bikes with 2.2 tires and no dropper posts and now we're all riding bigger bikes with bigger tires and dropper posts and jumping things and you're still on the same tires (laughs) <laughs> no, he just he just said he's running two sixes. Well, yeah, now. he moved up to two sixes. That with a grid casing. God damn. That's just because the previous bikes that he had wouldn't fit a two six, right? Yeah, pretty much. No, he's pretty on much. The... <laughs> no, without a doubt. Like it's it's hard to go away from the stuff. It's hard to go away from light and fast. Like it's just it's tough because there is a reason why those bikes are really cool, right? Like we all have ridden race bikes and they're addictive because they're freaking snappy and they're fun and they're fast. Like I get, I get it. Uh, so trying I feel to like trying to merge that with a modern trail bike, that's my goal in life. So what were you saying, Andrea? Oh, I feel like you, me and Matt and people of our approximate age. And when we started mountain biking, like I think you and Matt, you and Matt started before I did, but. And Kenny started before I did. Yeah. So like I started mountain biking in uh, let's just say 2009. 2008, nine. It was 2009 for sure because that's when I like said fuck you to pro ish road cycling and got a mountain bike. Like I sold most of my road shit, got a mountain bike. And I feel like if you started then, like you were in the era of when bikes started to get good, like 29ers were starting to get good, bikes in general were starting to get good. Uh, let me let me interject here. 29ers were as good as the products of that day. Yeah. So we had overcome the s- geometry quirks of the original 29ers, and mainstream 29ers were becoming a thing that worked. Yeah. And like Niner was out, and they were putting out stuff that was good. And, you know, like I, I think we, like at least I started riding mountain bikes, like when stuff was starting to get good, but. Like dropper posts, other than a say like a gravity dropper, just weren't a thing. So we all learned how to ride down some stupid shit with the saddle just knocking the fucking wind out of you. You know, like just banging you like right in the solar plexus, you know? So I, I think that sticks around. And I don't know where I was going with that, but I just <laughs> wanted to say that I feel like we all have the same advantage for riding technical stuff. Um, because of partially because of that. Well, I think, you know, some people might fault us for going bro or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, well, a, I live in a more bro place now. Like when you have access to bigger trails that are more fun, 
you're going to ride the bigger, more fun trails unless you're an insane person. So I, you know, I, I never really understood why bigger travel bikes existed when I lived in Memphis. Like it just didn't make much sense. Like I knew why they were around, but I just so rarely rode those kind of trails. It just didn't make, it didn't make any sense. Well, yeah, because if you rode, if you rode one of those bikes in Memphis, you're like, yeah, even like a, remember at outdoors, we had the Ross nine oh, yeah. demo bike. And like, I took that out once on the Wolf River trails and I was like, this thing. Well, yeah, if sucks. all you do, like, if what's all you the do point is carve this? flat corners, having a slack, long travel hardtail doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So right. anyway, all that said, the, you know, the evolution is just the trails are getting gnarlier in general. I mean, go look at cross country, look at the world cup level, look at the bikes they were riding in 2010 and look at the bikes they're riding now. They are, they're quite different. And Don't get me wrong. They're still very, yeah, 26 yeah. Inch I mean, there were so versus... many people on hardtails even four or five years ago and they almost never pick the hardtail. Yeah. There's a few riders and few courses where they do it. They almost all ride full suspension now. And on top of that. Well, yeah, full suspension bikes have gotten so good. Like the, so the Trek super caliber, the high end, like the 9.9 .9 version of that is 20 pounds or something. It's a 20 pound yep. full suspension bike. Like, why wouldn't you well, ride that? And I would say, too, something that's changed is not only have the courses gotten harder, the terrain that people wanted to ride, or sorry, the courses have gotten harder, the bikes have gotten better. So then what the average person is riding on, like, a weekly, monthly basis has gotten harder and then what happens is, is you'll see if you go and you look at whether it be the average Joe riding or that elite racer, not only is the terrain becoming more difficult, but more and more people are riding the bike instead of just surviving the trail. Right. You know, so they're going through, if you want to make the argument, well, they're racing the same course. Okay. Well, like nine people used to go OTB in the elite men's race on this one section. And now it's one, you know, like. Maybe the riders got better. The bikes definitely got way better. Absolutely. Like, yeah. So, and also yeah. when they're building a new trail, instead of just like kind of picking a random line down the mountain, there's a lot more purpose that goes into building a lot of trails these days from everything from drainage to like actual enjoyment. And like, Hey, you don't need to make the entire course terrible and tight and rocky, for example, like you don't have to do that. Unless you live in, Unless you live in Memphis and you, you build the trail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speed. Right. So th in general, they're building trails with a little bit higher speeds in mind. And it's like, Hey, you know, berms are actually kind of cool. Maybe we should use some of those and we can actually put some jumps in. And if we do want to put in a, uh, techie step down rock section, it's, uh, people, you know, 90% of people aren't going to hike it. Maybe half of the people are going to ride it now, that kind of thing. So yeah, as the riding progresses, the trails progress, everything progresses. So anyway, it's really cool stuff. Bikes are awesome these days. Uh, what else? New dropper seat post. Uh, I'm on the bike yoke divine. No, not divine. I'm sorry. Bike yoke revive max. That's just a 34, nine, uh, bike yoke, nothing special, but so far so good. 
Uh, what else? Tires are good. Wheels are good. Droppers good. Uh, I am going to still go down the road of doing a remote lockout for my rear shock and get that little bit of extra travel. It's still the same eye to eye, uh, but I'm just going to take out an internal spacer essentially. And I'll probably even run the same volume spacers inside the rear shock. So it's going to ride exactly like my shock does today, except when you get into an oh shit moment, there'll be 10 more mil of travel all the way at the end. When you go, it'll go. (laughs) Yep, exactly. I think that's about it for me as far as new parts and stuff. Um, and ride. I have a I have a modern bike rant to go on whenever you're finished. Yeah, I'm ready. Go for it. And then I'll follow that up with more new bike stuff because I'm a spoiled dickhead. So, everyone, shout out to all of my people who ride small and medium frames and try to go bikepacking. Because, for whatever reason, I guess the picture on the side of, you know, like the Walmart bike sizing where they're just like, here, this is how you size a bike. You stand over it and see if you have like two inches of clearance for your crotch. Make sure your lips don't graze the top tube. Yeah. Um, And then like on every brand, every manufacturer on their bike, on their bike boxes, um, the same picture is on there, even if it's like a $10,000 bike. So fuck that. Like I'm so mad at standover height because if you bike pack and you're on a smaller, medium hardtail, you basically have enough room in your front triangle because of standover and everyone's obsession with fucking standover. You have enough room in your front triangle to fit two to three liters of water, depending on the shape and size of your water carrying a bag reservoir and like a tube, like whatever you can kind of pack in around the the water reservoir but there's not enough room to really like organize anything you just have like a little bit of dead space in there that you just try to make the best of so i'm just so tired of standover like i i have a personal vendetta against it now that i mean i've been bikepacking for a few years but now i'm getting ready to do a bikepacking race and it's like do i even want to run a frame bag like do i just want to put extra water bottle cages like on my down tube and on my fork and just say fuck a frame bag because it really doesn't help me that much it doesn't give me that much capacity you know like the kind of like the left side of it it's always a smaller pocket on most frame bags and you can fit like your wallet and stuff in there that's helpful that's really the only extra pocket that a frame bag has that's going to do me any good because i can carry the same amount of water if i just use water bottles and I don't know, like, there's just not much room else, there's not much room for other stuff in there. And it sucks. The only bike that I've ridden that had an adequately sized front triangle that it could actually kind of, like, spread a frame bag out to where you could pack more stuff in it was a Viral Designs Skeptic. And Gates let me borrow that for the end of the 2015 season. No, 27, sorry, 2017 season. It was after I moved to Salida. Um, yeah, so they let me use one at the end of the 2017 season, and I went bikepacking on it, and it was wonderful. Like, I could actually put my water in there. I could put, like, a couple, I, I could fit an extra tube. It was a 27-plus bike, so the tubes were big. I could put a, one of those tubes in there. I put my tool tools in there uh maybe like some food and like my camp stove 
you know, stuff that I wasn't going to get into all the time, but it was so nice because the triangle was actually like bigger on there. I never had a problem with the fact that the standover was maybe a little close based on what that stupid picture at Walmart tells you. So that's my rant. Fuck standover. Again. While you're just that angry, do you want to... Jesus Christ, the same always and forever. So the one cool thing about the standover that I will say is I really do like where modern, like, full suspension mountain bikes are going, personally. Yeah, the bottle situation, it's a bummer. I get it. But it is kind of nice. You got, I mean, it's accommodating, on purpose, a longer dropper seat post. And then it's just that much lower standover. But... Also, you have companies, and I'm not going to name names here because they've already tried to get us fired once. You have companies that are measuring standover at a place in the bike, like at the the junction of the top tube and seat tube. Where the nose of your... Okay, so any manufacturer that measures standover in an honest way has decided upon a number that is still dishonest. Everyone measures 50 millimeters in front of the bottom bracket. Well. Except for this one company. No. Even the people that are trying hard measure 50 millimeters in front of the bottom bracket. And I've had to have conversations before where I ask someone, okay, you are this thick from your tailbone to your soft tissue on the front is this thick. And I'm holding my hands about 10 inches apart because this is generally with a larger aging customer and then i tell them where the seat height or the where the standover is measured doesn't mean shit because you can't put your soft tissue where it's measured because the seat hits you in the tailbone long before your soft tissue is backwards enough on the bicycle for you not to go ouchy no i mean i'll i'll say it straight up like someone from rocky mountain said hey can you measure this bike of this other company and tell me what the standover height is. If like when you look at their geometry chart, where is that number? Well, and it's it measured was, at the seat tube. It was literally the seat tube and the top tube junction. Of course, it is. Which is totally irrelevant when it comes to standover. But you well, have these these people that are obsessed with standover as a number, and they read that geometry chart, and they're like, "Oh, I want this bike because it's got the lowest standover." Even though when you measure it where the other company's measuring it. At 50 millimeters, like what Matt said, 50 millimeters in front of the nose of the saddle. But or, what sorry, in front of the bottom bracket. It's the same as the other companies. And what I'm trying to say is even 50 millimeters is horse ass. It needs to be closer to like 125 or Yeah, something. like it should be, I don't know, let's say like 100 millimeters behind the, the head tube. Or how about this? Like if they could just agree upon center of the steering axis, so the center of your head tube, right? And and even the center of your seat tube, and just divide it by two, really simple. Sure. And like measure yeah. measure it there, <laughs> and that's the it's the same. Like top top tube length divided. No, by you two. can't do top tube length because the more you of angle course, it, yeah, no, actual top tube. for for sure. No, so I reach, and this is why there's not going to be any way you do it is not going to be perfect, right? It's gonna it's gonna it's just not going to be right. But I agree, it would be very nice if somebody could figure out something that is reasonable. Like, hey, when you have your, essentially, the small of your back, like the the 
nose of the saddles and the smaller your back and you're standing over your bike, that's as far back as you can fucking go. So it should be measured at that point. Yeah, definitely. And and on a hardtail, you know, you have companies that are making the triangle so small that you can't fit a water bottle in the rear position, like on the seat tube. And it's just, it's, it's dumb. Like the, even on my Vertex, I had to use the Wolf Tooth, the B-Rad bottle re- relocating system. I had to put that on there in order to use the rear water bottle. Like the place where the bottle holes are drilled in the seat tube stock, <coughs> don't hold a water bottle. Like you put a cage in there and you can't, even a small one, like the smallest water bottle you can get doesn't fit in there. So I had to relocate it lower in order to fit a bottle in the cage. It's like, why did you even put bolt holes there? I guess so I could like buy another, you know, $30 piece of equipment to just have 20 ounces extra water. Thanks. I'm really glad I have that extra standover that doesn't actually matter as a number, on a, especially on a hardtail. You know, like maybe on a trail bike where you get in some weird situations, but show me someone who has wrecked standing over their bike with both feet flat on the ground. I'm not, that's giving me the simmer down. I'm your, not going to simmer down. Your wine and whiskey is showing. I don't care. I'm this mad about it all the time. I just don't always talk about it. <sighs> okay. Um, I guess I should talk about other stuff besides ranting, though. Where did you ride your bike last weekend? I went to Pueblo. Where did you ride your bike last week? I guess I should ask. Yeah, I know. It was, um, I went to uh, Pueblo. So uh, I'm being coached by Linda Wallenfels, if you don't know already, for Tour Divide. And um, I really need to get out and do some rides in warmer places because I've been training a lot when it's cold. I've been riding the trainer a lot. And, you know, just to kind of avoid the winter to spring transition burnout, which happens. To a lot of people, myself included, um, you know, I, I wanted to ride where it's warmer. And a lot of people go to Moab. A lot of people go to St. George. They it, Basically, people go to the desert this time of year um, to avoid that kind of thing. But that takes a lot of time and a significant amount of money. Um, basically, a day of work for me. If I miss a day of work, it's equal to probably two days on course at Tour Divide. So it's not that I can't afford to do Tour Divide. It's that I'm just on a really tight budget. So if I want to finish the race and be able to pay off my credit card at the end of it and not have interest, um, I just have to be really, really um, particular about how I spend my money. So I can't go to Moab. Can't go to St. George. Not going to Tucson. Um, I went to Pueblo, which is similar climate to Moab, but only an hour and a half away from my house. Um, you know, it's it's just what it is. It's warmer. It's very windy. The trails are not very technical. But I can go and just pedal a long time there. And that's really good. And it's actually really pretty. I found some really pretty gravel roads there. Um, they have a nice bike path through town. I kind of explored around town. And then I found... So there's this huge area in Pueblo a little bit west of like the main part of town that's like a I don't know if it's really like a technically legal ATV and OHV area but 
that's what people do there. And it's just miles of these double track rolling trails. So it's really cool. And uh, I rode that for a while. I went out on a uh, like a really pretty gravel ride um, near Pueblo Reservoir. <clears throat> They've got trails there that are pretty fun. Uh, then I went to the next, I rode two days in Pueblo, and then the next day I went to Canyon City. And holy shit, if you live in this area, um, or anywhere in Colorado, or I don't know, North New Mexico, I don't know if you go there in North, if you lived in North New Mexico, but uh, Canyon City, Shelf Road, and Red Canyon Park, yeah, Red Canyon, it's really, really pretty, like super pretty, like that's, it's one of the best routes that I have made, like sight unseen, in a really long time. And then I did Skyline Drive, which also is, if you think of a really wide bike path, like asphalt bike path, it's basically a wide asphalt bike path. They let cars drive on it, but it's one way and they have to go, it's like 15 miles an hour. Um, it's like riding a bike path at uh, across the very top narrowest part of a ridgeline. And seriously, the way I'm kind of scared of exposure, if it had been much windier, I probably would have walked a couple of spots because there's just nothing on the side. You're just, you're on this path that's as wide as the ridge that you're on top of. So it's really cool. So I'm I'm looking forward to going back and riding there some more. Um, so yeah, if you're around Canyon City or you're on the front range and you want to go uh, change of scenery, um, just Shelf Road and Red Canyon Park. Super nice. Super, really nice. You could definitely do it on a gravel bike, but there is a lot of washboard. Lots and lots of washboard. So I I like the mountain bike for it. If I had a gravel bike, I'd still ride my mountain bike. But that's all I've been up to. Ranting and riding mountain bikes. Well, I went to Canyon at the same time Andrea did, and she had to do a, what was that, like four-hour ride is what you're supposed to do? Yeah, something like that, yeah. I I had to do 12 hours over three days, so that was, my leftover time was like three and a half or something. Yeah, so Andrea went to Pueblo on Friday and Saturday. And then she came home, and Sunday we went to Canyon City together. She had to do like four-ish hours. So she rode from the Oilwell Flats upper trailhead, and I took off on single track because I built my other personal bike last week. So for those of you out there rolling your eyes, I purchased an S7 titanium frame and moved a bunch of parts off of my Y and move or off of my Rocky and my Hey Duke. So essentially, I used my Rocky and my Hey Duke and I made the Y a thing. And then I got my personal demo bike. So, those of you that have been longtime listeners, you'll know this. Working at Absolute, we get demo bikes. I got demo bikes at Wheat Ridge. So, I get a demo bike at Revel. I'm the demo guy. I needed a demo bike. I worked it out. So I built my personal rascal this week and I'm still, or the week prior to last weekend. 
So I'm still waiting on wheels. So I was running my personal Knox i9 setup on my uh, Rascal when I was at Orwell Flats. And I'm stressing that because I'm going to get to new wheels this week um, here in a second. But I rode for, gosh, I think my ride was almost two and a half hours, which is pretty good. That trail's pretty slow going. It didn't have quite as much signage as I was hoping. Um, you saw a lot of people you knew, though. Uh, I did. I saw a lot of people that I knew or knew of, kind of knew, met on the trail type stuff. So that was cool. And I saw Flynn, who used to work at Revel. We never overlapped, so he was on vacation when I interviewed, and he had moved back to SRAM by the time I started, and him and his significant other and their dog was out there. And I met some friends of friends, so some of my coworkers' friends from Rebel also saw them on the trail, saw Josh Tostada on the trail. Uh, it was a fun time. And then I had probably the hardest rim ring-a-ding that I've ever had on the trail. Like, I just straight up absolutely smashed my rear wheel on the ground. So it was really annoying. Um, just annoying. It was just annoying. Didn't pinch flat. I don't know how. Like, it hurt. Like, the noise. You were, you were riding the Farlows, weren't you? Yeah. There you go. I, uh, mm. They're strong. Like, for people our size, those are... Rim from... strength has nothing to do with pinch flatting. Well, I yeah. don't know how no, I did. I know that. Trust I don't me. know how I didn't pinch flat. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I thought about. you meant, like, pinch flat and crack a rim. No, I mean just like the sauce comes out and the air doesn't stay in. I don't know. Those never remember I pinch flatted the Just um... stop. Just stop. No, the wheels I had before I got those Farlows, I pinch flatted twice. You pinch flatted three times on those Bontrager wheels. And then I got the Farlows and I had no more pinch flats. I don't think you ever I didn't realize, Matt, that you were on the Farlows. So Andrea bought Tia Callie's and I bought her Farlow wheel set from her. Okay. So when Andrea had her element and her spot, she was running Tia Callies and Farlows respectively. When she turned the element demo bike back in, she moved the Tia Callies over to the spot and the Farlows moved on to my Hey Duke because I was running those old non-boosted hubs you had built for me back in like 2013. Like this original i9 torches that I got that you built Crest for me with. Mm -hmm. I was still running yeah, yeah. those non-boosted hubs with just boost adapters. And it was roasting front bearings, front hub bearings pretty well. The, gotcha. the little end caps were too long. So it was just stressing the bearings and roasting the bearings pretty quickly. Um, and I, it was one of those deals where like Andrea had a wheel set I could put on the bike. And... You know, I just gave her like, well, they sell for this much on eBay. Shipping and fees would cost this much. You'd put this much in your pocket. I'll hand you cash right now. And one of my coworkers was building up a Coconino. Yeah. Yeah, Coconino um, non-boosted hardtail. And I was like, I got that perfect wheel set for you. So she bought my wheels for pretty much the same thing. Like, what would they go for on eBay? Minus fees, minus shipping. Here you go. And 
she handed me cash and I took more cash out of my wallet and handed it to Andrea and everybody was happy. So, um, anyways, uh, yeah, I just absolutely, totally like dominated, smashed that wheel, but nothing happened to it, which is pretty cool. And then Andrea was still riding, so I changed and got in the car and drove to town and grabbed some snacks from the store and then like picked her up as she finished her ride and we drove home. And then it was Sunday. No, that was Sunday. Uh, and then the next day we went into a rock climbing and had lunch and stuff and drove in like the gnarliest. Because it was his birthday. It was my birthday. And we drove in the gnarliest like blowing snow I'd seen in a long time. <laughs> that was. Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty awesome. So I'll rip through the details real quick. I built up for my personal demo bike, extra large rascal in blue or AKA Alaska. And I use, so can you go over, can you go over like high level overview of, of your models just to remind listeners on what's up, like roughly what they are as far as rough geo and, and travel and such. Yeah. So we have as revel, we only have two bikes and that is a rail. It's an Enduro 27.5 race bike. It is fairly conservative. It's what I like to call modern conservative. So it's not super long reach, not super slack. The big bike is only 65 degree head tube angle. It's not like 64, 63, anything super stupor, you know. Uh, it has 170 in the front, 165 in the rear, dedicated 27.5 standard you know so two five in the front two four in the rear and has kind of like you were talking about it uses a little bit lower seat tube junction so on extra larges i could probably run a 200 mil reverb if i wanted um and it's just you know pretty what i would call standard again enduro race bike and then the rascal is the 140 130 29 inch wheeled bike, 66 degree head tube angle with again conservative ish numbers like reach on an extra large is only 488 you know so it's not like 505 or anything super long super crazy um there's nothing wrong with those numbers they're just a little standoffish to that customer that's trying to transition off of like a 2013 rumblefish or a 2015 trek uh, top fuel. So, you know, OG top fuel, not, not the cool top fuel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a very, what I would call int- good entry level. So that's why I call it conservative, modern or modern conservative. Um, and the, I'm running that bike with, uh, oh, oh, both the bikes run a piggyback rear shock. So you're going to run a piggyback on both. And as of recording, which is February 9th, neither of the bikes are have an approved coil. So we're working on it, and there's a company that's going to get us some coils for testing. But so far, only one coil has passed testing in terms of durability, but the tuning isn't perfect yet, and none of the other coils pass in terms of durability. And the big thing to know in that is it has nothing... Uh, it's not that the bike is noodly, it's that the pusher yoke, so like on your stump jumper, the upper yoke that pushes the shock, and I'm just talking to you to try to sure. describe it to the normal person, that yoke, if it is too long, it will bend the shock in half. Gotcha. So if you can imagine if if that 
pusher yoke is long, when the suspension compresses, it has a tendency to allow the shock to want to buckle rather than compress. Yep. So until we find a coil that has enough rigidity to pass in terms of durability, and then the company has enough, whether it be built-in tuning or understanding, whatever you want to call it, like to tune the shock, we're not able to run coils on any of the bikes yet. And if you go through the internet, you'll see coils on a lot of bikes, but I just am not certain how those coils are passing in terms of durability. So, um, but I built mine up what I would call fairly just, it's a, it's just built up as a bike. Um, I went with a 170 dropper because I wanted to have some consistency between my S seven, which is my tie hardtail and my rascal, my big full suspension bike. Uh, so they're both 170 Highline 7 Crank Brothers post, and they both use that wolf tooth lever. So literally my left hand, doesn't matter which bike I'm riding, it feels exactly the same. The lever feels the same, and then the old up-down stops in the same position each time. So it's just kind of nice where that like post fully dropped, bouncing down the trail, if the saddle's hitting you at the same spot on the thigh, it's just nice to have that consistency. Uh, so running it with a 170 Crank Brothers post, pike ultimate 140 on the front with the super deluxe ultimate in the rear that's a 210 by 50 in case anyone's curious and let's see i've done a little bit of shock tuning for the rear and the rear feels pretty good i'm still not happy with the front yet a 210 by 50 a fifth basically a 50 travel shock with a 130 bike and we're talking about the same bike now right yeah. We're, we're talking about the Rascal? Yeah. Okay, just making sure. Uh, that's a pretty generous, um, well, I guess you would say not generous leverage ratio, where it's clo- getting closer to one-to-one rather than not. To give you an idea, Specialized, for better or worse, they chose, I'm running a 42.5 travel for 120. So for sure, they have a little bit better at the end of the day, what that's going to mean is it's going to stress the rear shock a little bit less on your bike compared to mine. And you can also run a little bit lower pressures. My bike feels good. What can I say? <laughs> I haven't gotten to ride one yet. I mean, for one, our trails are fucked. So uh, even if Matt brought one home, I could ride it like around in the driveway and then I'd fall on some ice. Yeah, I was going to say, what are you going to do in the driveway? Fall on ice. Yeah. And that's what you just said you're going to do. Fall on ice. Uh, God, now you have me really nervous about this. Like I'm the, my card technically says technical field rep. And now I feel like I just named off the shock wrong. Oh God. Is it actually going to say it on the website? Uh, That's some really technical information. Yeah. Or... 210 by 50. Yep. Cool. I just had to check it. I was really nervous there for a second. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to make you, make you nervous, but a lot of people just don't realize that that's really a thing that you can have quite different. You can have the same travel bike with quite different stroke rear shocks in there. It's just up to the manufacturer how they uh, how they spec all the um, all the linkages on the bike to do that essentially travel multiplication. Uh, so it's just whatever ratio they choose, and you can yeah, generally indeed. figure it out. Like if it's probably a good idea, you know, what would be really cool is to know what that ratio number is because then you can also uh, roughly know what pressure to put in someone's shock to start with. You know, like the we're finding out that the Enduros, 
you're going to have, you have to put in like 1.4 to 1 PSI uh, per pound of body weight versus about 1.3 to 1 in the new stump jumper. And then the old stump jumper was like 1.1 <coughs> to 1. Are they not uh, doing so, auto sag anymore in Specialized? No more auto sag. Okay. That's probably like five years old information. I just am just now thinking about it. <laughs> no, I mean, it was popular there for a while. So they still do auto sag on the Epic. That's the last bike that I'm aware of of theirs that does auto sag, but all the bigger stuff doesn't do auto sag anymore. It's really convenient. I don't know how accurate it is, but it's convenient. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not bad. Uh, unfortunately, it's one more Schrader valve and a couple more seals. So it's one more place for the shock to leak. Yeah. So from a reliability standpoint, it's kind of nice to not have it, to be honest. Um, and also, if you want to tune your bike any differently, you need to know what pressure you're running. But if you always use auto sag, you don't really know what pressure you're running. Ooh, I know how you could so, know. It's just super yeah. complicated. Put a shock whiz on it? <laughs> yeah, you'd put your shock whiz on it, auto sag it, refer to your shock whiz, boom, you're good. Yeah. Yeah, because if you put a pump on there, you're losing like, what, 5 to 10 PSI? I mean, that's what everyone says, but... I don't know how to quantify that. Well, you if you have a shock whiz on your bike, you can watch it happen. Oh. Yeah. You just have to, everyone needs their own shock whiz set. Yeah. If you run a shock whiz, you can know a lot of things. You can know your compression ratio. You can know what pressure to run. And then you can actually install your shock pump and you know exactly to the PSI how many PSI you lose when you install said shock pump. I've seen anywhere from like probably six PSI to 12 PSI. Really, I usually see about 10. Like, it's yeah. pretty consistently 10 on most stuff I do. Right. So that sounds pretty accurate. So, back to my bike. <laughs> yes, tell us about Sorry. your bike. Uh, it's all X01, and I have G2 RSC brakes. How are those G2 brakes? Like, do they feel like guides or codes, or both? <sighs> they feel good. I feel like the lever needs to break in. So they feel more like guides. Because that's how I kind of feel like guides are that that way. I mean, I feel like codes are that way, too. I feel, I feel like I've seen more inconsistent G2 brakes, unfortunately. You should tr- Some come in try do the, try do the- and the levers are, like, awesome. And then others come in and they either have, like, you know, the pull is too short or just something's they're just not consistent. I don't know how else to say Try it. Doing the, Some uh, feel absolutely amazing and dialed. Well, this after doing many piston resets. So this is, we build a lot, we build a lot of new bikes. So I see a lot come through and when they're not consistent, I notice and they're not consistent. They're just not, but you know, what's really interesting is the one break I'm seeing lately that is super consistent so far is the new two-piece caliper levels that are coming on all the new, like S-Works Epics, for example. And we've built a bunch of those recently for uh, for some race teams. And those things feel really good. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm very nervous, obviously, like I should be. But so far, so good. They're, like, pretty decent. I wish SRAM would be more forthcoming with those details. Like, hey... We made a mistake and we redesigned the caliper and it's way better now. Like, okay, great. <laughs> but they kept it. They keep it a secret. I just saw a article online talking about that very thing. And some guy who probably didn't have as much information as like we have had about that whole situation 
was basically saying like, oh yeah, the old ones were maybe a little bit sketchy and there's like a new one and I think it's better, but they don't want me to like talk about it. And I don't understand why. And I just thought that article was really funny. Yeah. So I really, if we're, if we're ranting about breaks, cause I, I agree. Like the inconsistent lever feel thing is annoying. Cause I had to deal with that on a, a bike this morning. Like, I had to pad advance the rear brake because the rear brake, like, the lever pull was just totally different than the front brake. Um, the fucking, the Shimano, the new way that the Shimano brakes mount with the clamp in the middle of the brake and then the little brace on the outside, I understand why. And it's what Kenny, like, obviously the engineers at Shimano, like, Mr. Shimano was listening to Kenny bitch about how much the Shimano brake mount, like, the the clamp band was flexing and was like, okay, well, well, the funny, the funny thing is they could have just gone back to the dude who designed the, uh, the seven eighty five slash nine eighty five break. Cause that, yeah, that clamp worked freaking great. It was awesome. It had the little release button and you could open up the whole thing. So you don't have to like rip off grips and stuff. It was rigid enough. Uh, it even had accommodations if you want to be really dumb and you want to do eye spec stuff. It had all the things. And then they ruined it, and then they made it maybe a little bit better. Right. So, <laughs> so the, they're, they're still not back to as good as it was three generations yeah, like the ago. The head engineer at Shimano is listening and listening to Kenny complain about this, and it's like, okay, motherfucker, here, take this. And now, <laughs> when you have a bike that has a remote lockout for the fork and shock, a dropper lever, and then this Shimano brake. And then it's a small or medium bike, so you can't move the brake a long way from the grip. So you got to figure out where to just put all that shit so you can kind of reach it. And you just have to prioritize. Like on that bike that I built yesterday, it was a medium with a remote lockout and then a like a vertically moving, um, you know, like a two and three by um, Fox dropper lever. Like the, the remote lockout is just like you, you gotta like take your hand off the grip and reach for it because that's the only way it fit in with all that other shit. So that was, that's annoying. I, I don't like that brake mount at all. For sure. When you've got a lot of crap on the bar, that one is always going to be more inconvenient to have to shuffle stuff around. Like I had to shuffle all my stuff around on my bars and get creative and essentially what I had to do is I had to move my band clamp for like my dropper lever, for example, in, I think I had to move it. what I have to do? I guess I had to move it on the other side. It was on the, so I'm looking at the left side of the bar. It was on the right side of my brake clamp. Yeah. And just like you would have it, just like you'd have a shifter, for example. Yeah. And now I had to move it to, cause now that's way too far over. So I had to move it to the left side and luckily it's got a two bolt position in there and I had to move it to the other bolt position. Oh, you know what I just thought is on this bike I was building that had the remote, like the shock, the fork and shock lockout and then the vertical dropper lever. I could have put the dropper lever on the right side with the shifter because the shifter was I-spec. So I could have put that in the little gap between the brake brace and the clamp the clamp and the brace, like I could put the shifter or put the dropper lever in that little gap. And then I could have put the remote lockout for the suspension closer to the grip on the left side. 
Because that little lockout or the, the, the dropper post lever, if you have the lockout too close to the grip, when you drop your seat post, you'll lock your suspension out. Like you'll push the button that will lock your suspension out. Yeah. I guess I could have done that. I would have had to rehab, like put new housing on the bike and just rearrange everything, but I'll do it if someone complains about it. Does anybody remember what the, it's just on my brain right now. What's the name of the new wolf tooth dropper that has like the, it, uh, bar centric. It's a vertical. It's called bar centric. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I'll probably, I'll yeah, probably try nice one of those because I think I'm going to have to have one. Uh, if I do my remote, my uh, suspension remote twist lock, twist lock. Why don't you just do twist lock for your shocks? I, I hate that thing. <laughs> the twist lock. Yeah, man. Wait, are you it's, dead was, serious right now? Y- yeah, it was not for me, man. I, I don't like that thing at all. Are you serious? I'm dead serious, man. Don't be don't be forcing your twist suspension lockout stuff on me. <laughs> this is the longest no one's talked. Do we have any listener questions? <laughs> Do we have listener questions? Oh god. I'm just hold on. Let's talk about. I mean, I wasn't done talking about my bike yet either. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I really, really, I. You know what, Kenny? You're right. Twist lock sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. Way no, it's not. A, it's not about exactly. me being right or wrong. It's just I don't like that. I've never just tried like it I don't love. No, it's your hand is wrong. I don't love. <laughs> it's because he has pretty fingers. I don't love grip shift necessarily, but I can appreciate it for what it is. Like it does work well. I just don't prefer it. Kenny, can you can you send me a picture of your hands so I can see if they're still pretty? Kenny, <laughs> can you apologize to your dick for me? Because if your hands don't like twist lock, I can only imagine how bad of a hand job you give yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad one person's laughing at that. <laughs> oh, okay. So, hey, now, I'm, sim- I'm simple, man. I don't need any fancy twist. <laughs> now, thanks for making it weirder, Kenny. Uh, so now that anytime now that everyone is really uncomfortable, I'm going to make everyone even more uncomfortable. So, I said that my bike was sharing wheels. My two bikes were sharing wheels because I'm waiting on wheels, and that's still true. I uh, went back to the office this week. Had a super gnarly, quick, fast week of didn't leave because a gnarly snowstorm was happening. So then I stayed home and sent emails like all day. And then I, what did I do? I got up and I drove there through like a bunch of junk and I didn't get to get a bunch of the stuff I wanted done done because my van's still being rewrapped and because I didn't have a van, I couldn't drive the trailer and because I couldn't drive the trailer, I didn't get to go to the dump. And cause I still I, gotta, you need to find like a, a shaman down in, uh, in Arizona to smudge your van because it is real weird that you're driving around in an ambulance that has not been cleared of any of its old whatever happened in the ambulance. So... I just uh, looked around the shop because we moved our office and we put everything in one building. And we 
no longer need to use our offsite warehouse. So I was looking around to figure out what was where and what was available. And I found a wheel set to use on my rascal. I like how long of a preface you had to give this just to like try and justify the company that's making this wheel set. So it's real cool. It's Hydra hubs with some nice bladed spokes. Lace to those Crank Brothers Synthesis ride tuned rims. You said it was Crank Brother wheels. You didn't say it was I nine hubs laced to Crank Brother rims. Oh, even I I have standards. Okay, Come on. Well, that's way different. Like that's no, it's that's the totally different. It's the new ones that use I nine hubs. I've wanted to try those wheels for what it's worth. I think they're on the I, right track. Like they got the heavy. reinforced. They got the reinforced nip. Uh, little reinforced nip areas there. And they're really flat. I think more rims should go with a little bit flatter profile instead of being so damn deep. And that way they've got a t- at least a semblance of vertical compliance. Um, and they're also going to be lighter. But unfortunately, those are not that light. But anyway, go on. They're not light at all. They're 1830. Yeah, I wish they were lighter. But it's a cool idea on that rim. You I should, think they're going in the right direction. You smash them into stuff. Well, I'm not going to try to purposely break them. Well, no, not on purpose, but, you know, not God's not will purpose. be done. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to ride them easy. Be like that guy that knows how to case jumps. I'm not that good, but uh, I'm going to rally them. So I went to, when I was at Canyon City, I was riding my hardtail wheels on the Rascal, which was my Noxes and I'm running a recon two six in the front with a recon two four in the rear. And I really liked the way the recon rode in the rear. I felt like it had good enough straight line pedaling traction and loose stuff, but I wished for a little bit more on the front. So I found a recon two four for the rear and I'm going to run that DHF two five EXO. Not EXO Plus, but just standard EXO on the front to try to save a little weight and have a little bit more suppleness. Um, I know this is really silly. and I know that it can't happen because of the number of SKUs they would have to support in order to make this come to market. But I really wish that they had... EXO Plus Recon for the rear? DHF 2.4 for the front. But they have 2.3 and 2.5. Okay, I'm not going to run a 2.4 Recon with a 2.3 DHF up front. Okay. I'm not going to run a bigger rear tire than my front tire. They really don't make a 2.4 DHF in anything? No. There's a 2.5 and a 2.3. Like, that's just oh, that seems That seems weird. I just thought a 2.4 was, I don't know. I don't know why I thought a 2.4 existed. I thought that was a super popular size. Yeah, for smaller tires. Hmm. Like Ardent, Recon, um... I don't remember what else off the top of my head they make in 2.4, but. It's just really weird that in some they use like a point odd and in some they use a point even sizing. Yeah. But it's fine. I'm going to ride it. I mean, it's going to work. It's a tire. They make an aggressor 2.3 and 2.5. Yeah, they're. They're point. It's It's the stuff that's made to match with each other. Like most people have a DHF in two three or two five, and most people have either a DHR or a an aggressor that are two three or two five. 
I didn't say anything you said was wrong. I just said I wish for something different. Always. No, I mean I'm just like Kenny, where he said his hand doesn't like the twist lock. I, I just feel like I look down at it. Well, the tire I really want to try is a dissector, dissector, but they don't exist. I mean they exist, but they don't exist. And if you tell me, oh well, blah blah, no. I had someone from a really big online seller tell me that they sold a large number of those in three days, and it made my head hurt. So uh, you just can't really get Dissector 2.4s easily, readily available, which is a bummer. Because I would like to try that tire, because it's kind of like a new Ardent almost is what it looks like. It's like a big recon, if you will. So I'd be jazzed to try that. If it ever really exists. Yeah, it will eventually. It's like the aggre- the aggressor was hard to get at first, and now they're always available. Do we have listener questions? Yeah, do you want to talk about them? At least one. How long have we been recording? Do-do-do-do. Over an hour. Oh, shit. Pick the best listener question. Like, from the best listener, not necessarily the best question. Well, we have two, and we're going to answer both of them. Okay. Merrick says, "Do we have any good names like from Seymour Dix?" No. Okay. Merrick says, "I'm looking for a short travel bike with 120 front, around 100 in the rear, and would love your opinions." I've looked at the following: Yeti SB100, Rocky Mountain Element, Epic Evo. I plan on doing Utah's XC race series, as well as longer races like True Grit and Crusher. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. Merrick from Cedar City, Utah. P.S. I'm moving up to South Jordan in May. Kenny's shop already has my business. So I say, when are you buying? Have you considered the Santa Cruz Blur? What are you riding now? And he answered back, "Uh, I'll be buying in June or August. The Blur has crossed my mind. I do like that it can dual lockout, but I think the Element does that too. Current bike is a Hightower LT. And I responded, the 2020 Element does not have a remote lockout on the 120 bike. They left the remote on the 100-100 XCO edition. And the, what's just standard Element, is now dropper post with a shifter style lever. No remotes anymore. I don't like the lack of tire clearance on the Element. And the rear triangle has not been updated. Also, have you considered the top fuel? The bike is a tad more travel, but looks way better in my opinion. 120-115 and holds decent tire size. It rips. And he says, awesome, thanks for your help. Does Rebel have a bike like that? No. To be short and to the point, we don't. Top fuel rips. That bike's awesome. I was really, really geared up to buy a top fuel and then I went to a job interview, and now I work for a bike company that doesn't sell Trek because we're a bike company called Revel, and I can't have a top fuel. However, with all of that said, given my current travel and whatnot needs, not not travel as in suspension needs, but like traveling around the country, my ability to train and be focused and like be home on a given number of weekends to race my bike pretty all but non-existent so the necessity for me to have a bike like the top fuel is pretty low at this point so 
it's not the end of the world. But if I think if I was going to be racing, that's definitely the kind of bike that I would really, really want. I think the blur looks cool. I mean, I, I had the element. Um, mine had a rear shock lockout. It didn't lock out the front. And that was 2019. Yeah, I had the 2019, and I, I really liked it. And yeah, the, the tire clearance was small, but I was only cross-country and endurance racing on it. So I did not have a problem with that. I was trying to stick with light tires, so that was not... It was never an issue while I rode the bike, because if I wanted more tire... um. I wasn't going fast enough. Like you just, it was just a fast and loose. Like that bike was really light. Um, it's a lot lighter than an SB 100 out of all the bikes that you mentioned. I'm guessing the SB 100 is probably the heaviest. You know, if you're racing just because you want to race. Cool. Um, if you're racing because you are in contention and you want to win and you need, you know, all the seconds you can get. Um, I'd say not that the SB 100 is a bad bike. I'd say that's probably not, um, the lightest and quickest handling in a cross country race type of bike. Now, if you're Jeff Kabush and you're just really fast and you can ride anything, like it just, it doesn't matter. But if you need every watt that you can get, um, you know, looking for the lightest, fastest thing is probably the way to go. I mean, if I can be snarky, the SB100 is such a good cross-country bike that he races his open up on the really fast cross-country races. Yeah, exactly. He's on a, a gravel bike with a flat bar. No, he runs a drop bar. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, so I'm being facetious. It's yeah. such a bad cross-country bike that he chooses to ride a gravel bike in some events. Right. I mean, isn't Yeti basically taking that and putting Yeti labels on it and making it a bike of theirs or something? Oh, it was an open up with a teal paint job. Yeah. It doesn't even say Yeti on it. It might. I think it was just a uh, Yeti open up. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's it's up to your priorities. Like, the element was wonderful for the racing that I was doing on it. It was exactly the right bike for it. Um, but when I went to like the bigger backcountry stuff where you're descending for 30 or 40 minutes and it's kind of gnarly shit, I went to a slightly bigger bike. Yeah. And, uh, I think, I think the best thing that you can do, obviously ride all those bikes. We say this all the time. There's so many good bikes out now. It's hard to find something crappy from a main manufacturer so that the, positive way to look at this is don't overanalyze too much because you're going to get a super nice bike as long as you get something that's modern if you buy the latest generation stuff like they're all going to be so damn good they all have their little quirks right um the the biggest takeaway is buy the bike from the place that's going to give you the best support because especially if you race your bike and you ride your bike a lot stuff's going to break stuff's going to wear out stuff's going to need attention stuff's going to have to get warrantied like that's just the name of the game uh, so just pick a brand, hopefully that, uh, your bike shop of choice carries. That's my best advice to you. Um, you know, cause I like nothing more than helping out our, you know, local racers that help <coughs> us out. Um, so, you know, it's just a, you know, it's developed that relationship with whatever brand slash bike shop you choose. And then that will be 
good for you at and the definitely, end. Instead of oh, you finish. It's way more important. Yeah, instead instead of it, it's tempting to go completely solo on it and say like, okay, I've made my decision because of this point one degree geometry difference. I'm going to buy bike Y. But I don't think that's really the right way to go about it. Um, you're going to be super happy on any of these bikes. So again, get the one that has good support. Um, cause that's going to, that's going to pay dividends in the end, not that 0.1 degree, uh, geometry difference. And, and I make, don't know anything. Make sure you go into, um, family bicycle outfitters in Cedar city and complain about something you heard on the JRA show. Also real fun. I'll be down there the week around the hurricane mountain bike festival. So that'll be before you move. So I'll do a demo with family bicycle outfitters. You can come by and say hi. But definitely go in there, talk to Brent, and tell him that you are really angry about something you heard on the JRA show. And and also, like <laughs> if you are at a bike company and you're mad about something we've said, um, he is the go-to guy for complaints. Is Brent at fi- Family Bicycle Outfitters? <laughs> All right. What's our other question? Um. So you're looking at like you're looking at Salida Swap. This is from KJ Kelly from the internet. Hello, JRA crew. I'm trying to pin down a great mountain bike adventure in early May, one week somewhere where we can set up camp or a rental. Dunford and Moab would like to find some new place to discover. Maybe some longer trails that venture up into Aspen country? No. Not in May. Or is May asking for trouble too wet and snow? Most definitely. Yes. Is Gunnison similar to Grand Junction in May? New. Some of the trails are in, I don't know the extent of it, but I know there is a trail closure in Gunnison, like a seasonal one in May is, um, yeah, I'm not sure when it lifts, but it's, it might go into May. I know the Gunnison Growler is near the end of May. The Growler is the opening of the trails. Okay, I thought I didn't know if they were open like a week ahead of time or something. Uh, well, it's more it's functionally the opening, so it's two things, and I think the reason they do the race so early is one, it's not too hot, and then two, it's not seen much moto traffic yet because a lot of those trails are open yeah. to motos. Yeah. So for um, the most part, would both of you agree that probably if you're going to be riding up at around ten thousand feet, uh, you just need to wait till July first, no matter where you are. Yeah, pretty much. I mean. Here's the thing. Let me finish reading this. I'll answer your – or any thoughts or advice you can give is appreciated. We're coming from Wisconsin, so we're good with a little chill. We got screwed over last year in South Dakota in May. There was 14 inches of snow. Many thanks and keep on keeping on, Kelly L. So to answer Kenny's question, I don't know anybody that at the end of July has done a ride and been so relieved at every creek crossing by the cool – crisp water on their feet and then got done with their ride and dunked their head in a river and been like, boy, I wish it was colder today. Like, I mean, if that's when your, if that's when your vacation is go to Moab, go, go to Grand Junction. There's probably some places in Utah also like St. George. Maybe I don't know. St. George might be getting a little hot by then. I was kind of fucking hot in St. George like three weeks ago, but it could also be cold there but i just want to say like in when i first moved to colorado i moved to 
9,000 feet. And in May, there was a two-foot snowstorm. Yeah, so, like, you just can't have fun. Like, you might get to, let's call it place, and it just be, like, totally tits. There's no other way to put it. Yeah, it might be awesome. Or it might be terrible. But there's a good chance of either one of those things. And if you went someplace lower, um, there's a better chance on the awesome side. For sure. I know Park City here, that's kind of my barometer. And we usually can't ride all everything in Park City until sometime in July. Like, you just can't. Yeah. Pick something, you know, pick something else for May. There are definitely some good places, but I'd look for more of the high desert type stuff like Moab. Um, I'm sure you can find the kind of hidden gems that aren't Moab because, yeah, Moab is busy. It's busy. It's really busy. But if you went there and you had a good time, like, just go back. It's it's cool. You know, maybe if you went to um, Fruta Grand Junction, like that area, there are there's some um, the kind of valley area before you're in the San Juans. Um, I think like Ridgeway and stuff like that's kind of cool. It's a small trail system in Ridgeway, but, you know, you could like day trip it just to see something different. I don't know if May 1st in Ridgeway is good or not, though. It is like I, that's when I went to Moab. Like that's similar to when I, when I went to Moab and I stopped in Ridgeway on the way back. Like it was sometime in May. It was like on my birthday or something. Well, that's like middle of the month. Yeah, but there was there wasn't like patches of snow off in the grass or anything. Gotcha. Yeah. Ridgeway is not in the mountains. Like you can really see the mountains from there, but it's not like super in the mountains. It's kind of like Salida. All right, we uh, we gonna call that good. Yeah, I think so. Early May in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Stick to the high desert or the lower desert. <laughs> yeah, the lower desert's starting to get hot, but yeah, desert. Yeah. All right, and with that, that's the third episode of Just Riding Along in 2020, and it was brought to you by Brothing. Brothing. Past tense of breathing. I'm going to push stop recording now. Now? Okay, stop.